Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk O'Bear and John Birdsall. John is in the middle of a trial. I just finished a trial. Um, this is one of those times of the year when things are so busy. Um, people are kind of spread out in our firm doing trials all over the place. So often John and I do trials together, but uh, during this particular time period, it's uh, we're a bit bit split up, you know, spread out throughout the state. But uh, Attorney Rock from my office and I just concluded a trial earlier this week that took all week. And it was up in one of the northern counties. Now, I don't have my client's permission yet to share all the details. I can tell you that it was a not guilty verdict. And um, when I get that permission, I can share more information. So I can't talk about, you know, factual details. But I do want to talk about the process because, once again, uh, it's an opportunity, one of many I've had over the course of the past 28, 29 years of practicing law to reflect on the nature of our justice system and things that are both frustrating and, I think, encouraging about it at the same time. And I want to start off by talking about how primitive this process still appears to me after all these years. And what I mean by that is that um, results can be so very um, precariously dependent upon the performance of the lawyers in court. And that just bothers me because we're talking about a verdict that will have a dramatic income, impact on people's lives, uh, both the defendant and the alleged victim uh, in a case such as what this one was. Um, very, very major consequences either way. And I, I understand that I fully accept the obligation and challenge, I suppose, to um, represent the interests of an individual person in the context of this um, legal environment. But oftentimes it seems that, you know, the result could end up being arbitrary based on the way that the, the, the individual lawyers in court, what they do, what they say, how they act, all kinds of things that impact all that. And it seems like in this world where we have so much technology and so much more certainty in things, other things in life, that there's just this huge risk of getting it wrong. And I don't mean the jury getting it wrong. I mean the lawyers, like, getting it wrong. And for me, this was a, a case, again, I won't talk about the facts, but it was apparent to me, and I've been working on this for three years, by the way, that this particular defendant was absolutely not guilty. There was just no question in my mind. Uh, at the same time, the prosecutor was 100% or more <laughs> convinced that the defendant was guilty. And what it came down to is how, how the evidence gets presented and what take you put on it, what sort of perspective you put on it. And it really could have gone either way. And that's just scary to me because in a society where we want to believe in law and order, we want to believe that the law is applied fairly, the, the most important part of that is that we all have to believe that it's not being done in a way 
that uh, traps the innocent into um, a scenario whereby their lives, that person's life is ruined because of something that didn't happen. And there's just such a huge risk of that occurring. Now, it's true. We do our best in our system to try and ensure that that doesn't happen. But we know that it does. And you've heard me say this before on the show, and actually I, I incorporated it into my jury selection process in this particular case, that if you had, you and I had a discussion about 30 years ago or 25 years ago, and we were to try and name examples of cases where there's definitely been a miscarriage of justice because an innocent person was convicted by a jury. There wouldn't be any examples of that. If, if, if there were, there would be very, very few. Because back then, before we had advanced DNA technology, or when we had some adjustments that we've made to the criminal process and the appeal system, it would have been extraordinarily rare for there to be a case where someone was convicted and then later uh, a reversal of that conviction based on what we now call actual innocence. And that was a term that wasn't used back then because it was a foreign concept. But with the advent of DNA technology being able to detect more minute quantities, smaller quantities, of DNA material, along with the fact that it is much more precise now. And, you know, going back to before we had all these exonerations that have occurred, there were methods by which um, forensic science was utilized to obtain convictions that was very, very sketchy and dramatically overstated in court. And interestingly, you know, even in this trial, there was uh, an attitude by the prosecutor that, you know, the technology that we have now is the best we have. It may not be perfect, but today, as we sit here in court, it's the best we can do, so you better rely on it, you know, because it's not perfect, but it's as perfect as it can be. And those were the same arguments they made back when they were using things like blood type analysis, hair analysis, which has been more or less debunked in the scientific community, and the limited sort of DNA testing that they used to be able to do back in that time. I mean, you know, if you look on YouTube or if you look at old episodes of Law and Order or even old movies from the 40s and 50s when they talk about, you know, this magical scientific evidence and, you know, utilizing that as this quote-unquote objective measure of whether or not somebody's DNA is present or their blood is present or hair or fingerprints or whatever. Um, technology was very, very sparse as far as that goes. But at the time, it seemed incredibly advanced <laughs> and was basically a way to avoid the, the traditional controversy of the credibility of witnesses. So... You know this just from listening to my show, but the, the way that forensics, quote-unquote forensics, has developed over the years is a way to uh, alleviate the prosecutor from having to rely upon the performance of a witness on the stand. But that didn't solve the problem, of course, because what it did is it made it so the lawyers, the people, the attorneys involved just had more stuff that they could 
frankly, manipulate and make it appear to be something that it really wasn't in an effort to obtain a conviction. It's again, it bothers me that, you know, this process is something whereby it's like doing battle in the medieval, <laughs> in the middle ages, you know, you have a suit of armor and like a battle ax and something like that. And, and you just go in and you, you know, you fight and then you see who wins. And, you know, it's, it just seems like there's so much potential for something to go wrong. I'm grateful that it didn't, but I'm familiar with, we're all familiar with situations where it didn't. And it's a good thing that we rely on juries to sort this out because the the lawyers can't. I mean, if it really came down to, hey, let's sit down and figure out what we're going to do here. Obviously, you know, if I believe and I'm promoting the fact that my client is innocent and the prosecutor is taking the exact opposite approach where it's turns into an all or nothing. And that's exactly what happened here. It happens all the time. And it just makes me think there are so many times when, and, and I'll agree. I mean, it, it shouldn't be something where I would get to determine the outcome. Heck, I'm an advocate. I mean, I, I can convince myself that I believe in things just like any lawyer who has a cause is frankly required to do. And what do I mean by that? Uh, you know, in our legal system, we basically have a process whereby competing positions are established in the criminal process. That's by the district attorney's office issuing a criminal complaint and the defense determining what they want to do in response to that. Sometimes it means, yes, you're right. I did that. I'm guilty. I'll plead guilty. More often it means, uh, okay, well, that's not exactly what happened, but something else, some variant of that. Then we have, of course, the many cases that result in negotiations where what really happened isn't the point so much, but what is a palatable resolution for all people involved. And then we have a situation like this where there's an allegation that's made. It's just false. So, we got to take a break right now, and we'll be right back after these messages. You know, back when I was a JAG in the Air Force, and I first started doing defense work, I got stationed out in Colorado Springs at Peterson Air Force Base. And I remember, I think I had been there about a week, and I received an invitation to go over to the prosecutor's office and have a, a discussion. They call it the Staff Judge Advocate's Office. So... Staff Judge Advocate works on the staff, usually, of the wing commander for any particular base. And they're responsible for basically all the legal stuff that happens at any particular base at the wing level. So it's equivalent to, like, the trial courts that we have, our, our circuit courts in Wisconsin. Um, so that's where trials happen. If there's any appeals, then it goes, you know, to higher appellate courts. But the actual trial where there are witnesses and there's a judge and jurors and all that stuff, it happens at the, the base level, the wing level. And so the, the chief of military justice, I went to his office and he sat down and he goes, welcome, you know, welcome to Colorado, God's country. That's what they used to call it. I think they still do. And he said, listen, Captain Bear, I just want to let you know I'm looking forward to working with you. You know, our goal here is to make sure that we uh, promote good order, uh, morale, and discipline on this base. And I said, duh, yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, 
And he was sort of trying to tell me that <clears throat> if I could work with him, you know, sort of hand in hand, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. I'll make sure that your time here in Colorado is enjoyable. And I was immediately offended because I had just gone through a lot of training and that emphasized how I was, I have a moral, legal, ethical obligation to represent my clients vigorously and aggressively because that's what's required by the law. That's what ex what's expected by the law. And when you read the words of those requirements and you read the words, frankly, of a prosecutor's ethical obligations, it would seem that all of this is really designed to make sure that, on paper anyway, we have a system that can be hopefully relied upon. Because if the rule was the defense lawyer isn't really supposed to try that hard, the defense lawyer is supposed to cooperate and work hand-in-hand -hand with the prosecutor to help them achieve their convictions. I mean, if it said that in writing, we would all you know, wonder, hey, that's not a very good system, right? So what this guy was telling me was that, yeah, I know what the written word says, but what we really want to do here is just, let's go with the flow. You know, we're going to charge somebody... You know, we'll be sure that the guy is guilty, guy or gal is guilty before we do it, but we just want to make sure that you're not going to really, you know, like create too much of a fuss. And I didn't know what to say. I thought, ooh, this is weird. And <clears throat> then the next part of the conversation is something that, that has lived with me in my head for, for years, all of the years <laughs> after. And it was, you know, he said, Captain O'Bear, I just, I'll tell you right now. If you ever have a client who is innocent, you can come to my office and tell me that he or she is innocent, and I will drop the charges. Now, doesn't that sound neat? Like, someone could come to my office, a client, and say, I'm not guilty. I'm totally innocent of this. They got it all wrong. And then I'm supposed to be able to go to the prosecutor and say, hey, my guy told me that he's innocent, so you need to drop the charges. And I knew instantly that it would never work that way. <laughs> what this prosecutor was doing is he was basically trying to shirk the responsibility of making that determination on his own, kind of having a buffer, maybe an ethical or moral buffer, so that every time I didn't go to his office and say, my client's innocent, that he, he could rest back and say, well, good, this person isn't innocent. And that's basically avoiding the, the necessary responsibility of a prosecutor doing that. Now, I've talked to others about this, and, and one one judge who, who I greatly respect in the Wisconsin community, when I told that story, said, well, it seems like he was just trying to, you know, offer a fig leaf or, a, you know, an olive branch or whatever, and was saying, hey, you know, he's really interested in justice and not necessarily in just convictions. And I, and I get that, and I agree, except that the way that it actually plays out, you know, I had many clients that were innocent. And rather than going to the prosecutor and say, this person's innocent, knowing that there was a lot of pressure. Look, I had the same job that this guy had prior to me becoming the defense lawyer. So I knew that you can't just say, oh, the defense lawyer came over to me and said his client is innocent, so we have to dismiss the charges. I knew that that was false. I knew it was fake. So 
it was basically just setting something up for, and I never did it just so you know, I mean, I, I suppose I could have tried, but <laughs> it just didn't feel right. And I know that that's not the way the process is supposed to work. And I know the types of pressures that, you know, this other captain, he was a captain, just like I was a captain. And he had majors, lieutenant colonels, colonels, generals, etc., all over his head that would have overridden his statement, which pr- frankly would have been foolish for him to say, oh, the defense lawyer came over to me and told me his client is innocent, so we can't go forward. I promised him. That's that's nonsense, okay? It's It was really just like some kind of poofy PR that he was trying to throw my way, as if to say, you know, let's clear the clutter and focus on these other things. So, you know, I politely said, oh, yeah, okay, great. And then the very next week, there was a trial scheduled that I had only been there, as I said, about a week, and I, I only had a very short period of time to prepare, but I did. I met with my client, I met with my witnesses, I looked at the evidence, I was ready for trial. And this um, chief of justice calls me on the phone and he said, hey, so remember our discussion, you know, this is something where what we want to do is, you know, we're going to go ahead and convict this guy and we're going to discharge him. We're thinking this amount of jail. I mean, if you think maybe a little bit less, we could think about that, but that's where this is going. And I felt like Um, I was being made irrelevant, that my role as the defense lawyer was being essentially controlled and to the maximum extent possible eliminated, except for how they perceived my job was to help them do their job. And there is that view out there, by the way. Many prosecutors think that defense lawyers aren't really there to represent their clients. They're there to assist the prosecution in clearing their calendar, dealing with the bureaucracy of, of government and everything. And it's, a, it's an attitude that pervades all jurisdictions, all counties, all state levels, all federal levels, where if you, you have a defense lawyer who's truly doing their job, it's often viewed as being difficult. And I'll tell you folks, that is the hardest part about this job, because to do what's really supposed to be done, to truly believe in the fact that our legal system has integrity and that there's some reason behind it, you can't just ignore all of the responsibilities that the defense has. It's a hard job. It's, it requires stamina, psychological um, pressure, mental pressure, physical taxing. I mean, after this trial I did this week, I am utterly exhausted. And it's more than just, you know, going to court and slogging it out. It's just the whole experience of being fully immersed in something that has such tremendous consequences. I mean, if you've ever watched a a movie, two, two hours, two and a half, where it's a courtroom drama, and you see all the dynamics of what goes on, even if you were sitting on your couch having a beer or drinking a coffee or eating some potato chips or whatever you were doing. You didn't, you weren't doing anything physically exhausting, but if it's one of those movies that captivates you and you, you go through that whole process of the drama of a trial, you can feel exhausted like physically and mentally that happens to me all the time. So, you know, that whole process is something that requires an incredible amount of, um, 
constant vigilance. And when one trial's done, you move right to the next. And win or lose, you gotta, you know, pick yourself up and dust yourself off and climb back on the horse. That's really the hardest thing. Um, because from the prosecutor's perspective, and a lot of judges, defense lawyers are not supposed to win. Uh, it's not supposed to happen. Now, a lot of times that attitude is based upon the fact that when a case is charged, it's theoretically researched, investigated, evidence has been gathered, and there is this threshold, probable cause, not a very hard, high threshold, that has theoretically been crossed by the time someone is actually facing charges. But we all know that the way that the process actually works is not anywhere near as efficient or accurate. So it is time for a break. We'll be right back. So just kind of concluding that story about how things were going when I was a, a JAG in the Air Force and the prosecutor said, hey, if you have an innocent client, let me know. I'll drop the charges. <clears throat> that That was something that I had such a visceral reaction to I didn't show it at the time I didn't like make a funny face and say eh, forget you or anything like that but it did um, reinforce to me how important it is to be able to um, do the job correctly do the job well and I wish there was some kind of standard a numerical standard some way to say okay this is this is how a case should be handled. This is how a case should be defended. These are the things you have to do. This is how you should ask the questions, you know, to make it somewhat mechanical. But it's not that at all. It's completely, I mean, it's it's a free-for-all. And it comes down to, I think about this all the time, every time I'm doing a trial, when it's my turn to make an opening statement, cross-examine a witness, make a closing argument, whatever the case may be, the challenge is and the, the burden is to find the right words and to articulate in a way that seeks justice. And <clears throat> you can write it all out, you can have a script, but I learned a long time ago that the way things happen at trial, you have to see what happens first because things never happen the way you think you're going to. <clears throat> Let's talk about that because... It's extremely common. I mean, I don't think I've ever done a trial where things went exactly the way both sides thought it would. Um, but think about that. If that's true, and it is, no trial I've ever done has gone exactly the way that both sides thought it would. Something happens. Somebody says something that's different. There's some issue that was kind of buried in the weeds. There's something that was undisclosed that comes out. There's some nuance that's apparent as the process proceeds, all that would have been unknown if both sides were trying to negotiate a settlement of some kind. And usually those things are to the advantage of the defense. Why? Because the prosecution has control over the information, the investigation, how it's processed, what is documented, what isn't documented, what's provided and what isn't. Although they're supposed to provide everything, there are times when a prosecutor can say, well, I don't think that's relevant or this isn't something that they need to know about. And when things come out at trial, it's, it's always stunning to me that had I known these other things and had the prosecutor known these other things about this case, it would have been an entirely different discussion that would have been had in the effort to see if the case can be resolved short of trial. 
Now, I don't think there is any way to fix that, but it just does kind of highlight how the imprecision of this process works. And so as I was doing this trial, again, I'll, I'll give you details at a later date, but just procedurally speaking, I can tell you that um, it, it went longer than anticipated. So there were other cases that had been on the judge's docket that where people would show up and they do something while we were in the midst of our trial. So the judge would have to take a break. Well, you know, counsel at counsel table would have to step back and let somebody else come in. And the, the flow, the, the stream of people that were coming in, and it was apparent to me, were resolving their cases on terms that they weren't really happy about. And the lawyers that were representing these people in such a way that they really didn't appear to have done much work at all, um, much less spend the time with the client to really get to know them, figure out what the case is all about, and pursue their interests the way that the Constitution really requires. Now, I'll come back to that because I'm stretching it a bit. But... In terms of, again, if we think that this process is going to work and it's going to properly represent some semblance of justice, it can't be something where, you know, the the defense simply rolls over, cooperates, does whatever the prosecutor wants, tries to appease the judge so that the calendar can be cleared. That's what it's always all about. Let's clear the calendar. Let's keep it moving. Let's move, move, move. Um, like it's a widget factory. And these are individual people with lives that have gone on before that date and will continue after. And sometimes it's a tremendously impactful decision. Because we know all the things that happen if someone's convicted really of, a, of any crime. Uh, more so if it's a serious crime. And it's not just like, hey, this happened this person's pleading guilty, they're going to be on probation, they'll pay a fine, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that's all true, except that it also marks somebody, like with the scarlet letter, that they're a criminal. And that affects this person's ability to obtain employment. They're not supposed to, people are not supposed to discriminate against people that, you know, have criminal charges necessarily. But once there is a conviction, they... What's to stop that from happening? Background checks. Basically, the integrity that one has in the community. Volunteering for organizations within your community. Like, let's say you wanted to be part of a nonprofit organization, or volunteer for your fire department, or anything that where you want to help in the community. And it turns out that 10 years ago, you wrote a bad check and you got a conviction for fraud or something like that that it was a mistake but you wanted to get it over with you, your lawyer didn't really seem to be interested in helping you and you just said okay fine you know uh, let's just get this over with because it's frustrating well you know it, it keeps people that would otherwise be more than happy to be participants as good citizens from from doing that and why is it turned into this huge mechanical process? It's it's a sickening feeling to be in court and just to see all the people, you know, shuffled in, shuffled out, conviction, 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 conviction. Not much regard at all. A very little time is spent on what 
the real solution to the problem should be. And it's never within mind's eye towards solving a problem. It's more like, let's just get it off the calendar. Let's move it along. Next. Next in line. Next in line. I mean, it's like people are applying for driver's licenses at the DMV. You wait in line. They call your name. They, you know, they're not interested in anything other than what's on your application. And it goes through the process. Now, many judges, most judges, I think, would would tell you that they do care and that they take their job seriously. And I, I get that. I believe that. But the nature of the beast is that <clears throat> they're relying upon the lawyers to do their jobs. A judge can't do his or her job unless the lawyers have done their jobs. That is absolutely true. And I can tell you from an insider's perspective that it's like swimming upstream, trying to get your job done, oftentimes. Prosecutors who simply don't care, uh, don't have the time or energy or you know, willingness to, to look seriously at a case, they're relying upon the investigative efforts of others to simply put things together and then they run with it. <clears throat> this last case was a very good example of that. An investigation happened. And again, not going to talk about details. I can just tell you generally that there was an investigation <clears throat> done by law enforcement. And there was there was no effort, in my opinion, to shade things a certain way or to, you know, inca- capture the information in a way that was helpful to one side or the other. This particular law enforcement officer did a very good job of trying to just gather the facts. But in the process of doing so because there were so many factors that impacted people's perspective and and why they were saying what they were saying that just lent itself to, well, now we've got it in writing. That gets put into a file. That file gets forwarded to the prosecutor. The prosecutor sits in, in this case, it was her office, and she decided based on what she's reading, that they can make a particular charge fit. They file the charges, and then they go from there. And then by the time we're in trial, it's a completely different case than what it looked like in the beginning. And that's what trials are for, uh, of course. They're to resolve disputes. And if we had a trial in every single case, maybe uh, this problem wouldn't be as bad. But... Uh, that doesn't happen unless, in fact, a lot of judges act like you're crazy if you say this case is going to trial. I mean, most of them will say, yes, okay, that's your right, fine. But, you know, I don't know that we can necessarily do that when you want to do it because I've got all these other cases. And it, it's a good thing. It's supposed to be a good thing when a case goes to trial because that means that we're relying upon the system to work, bringing in... 12 neutral people to make factual determinations that both sides simply cannot and shouldn't have to agree upon. That's it. All right, we'll be right back after these messages. Hey, I know it sounds like I'm doing a lot of complaining and not a lot of, you know, actual problem solving in, in my comments here in the legal system, but, um, and I get that. But going back to what I was just saying before the break, um, I think that most judges do rely upon the lawyers to do their their jobs as well as they can because a judge can't do his or her job without the lawyers doing what they're supposed to. But, you know, 
there is one perspective that is that this entire process is um, determined by the number of crimes and the amount of, you know, so-called crime in a community. And I hear this often from prosecutors that say, you know, they don't control their workload. Crime controls their workload. And yeah, okay, I get it. But at the same time, there has been a, an evolution over the years towards uh, charging decisions being made in, in very different ways. And it's not entirely the fault of the prosecution, but they do bear some responsibility in this. And, you know, we talk about in the world of uh, epidemiology, how epidemics happen. We're kind of in the middle of an epidemic now as it relates to the justice system. Slowly over the years, this a philosophy that all cases must be charged. Um, and there must be at least an attempt to obtain a conviction and for every referral has become very politicized. Part of that is because access to information, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but access to information has become available online. People can examine what's going on in the court system very easily nowadays compared to before the proliferation of internet sites that track that data. And I think that there is more public pressure, more political pressure on people in, the, in as part of that process to do more. And by do more, what I mean by that is have an impact on the um, community's safety. True, absolutely. Yes, that's the prosecutor's job. And when someone in that position is looking at the bigger picture and they say, okay, well, we've really got a rise in violent crime in this community. We're seeing a lot of, you know, particular types of things. We're seeing shootings. We're seeing, yes, the, that all requires a response, but the response shouldn't just be, let's get tougher. Let's get harder. Let's charge more. Let's charge every single case so that we can have an iron grip on the community because what it'll do is it'll exhaust the resources that we have for all of the other things that are supposed to happen that in, in, in the process of the judicial system being a helpful thing. So but, you know, I, I'm going to use the back in the day type thing. I know people don't like it sometimes when I do that, but back in the day, I mean, there used to be a lot more discretion exercised in prosecutors' offices. I mean, it would be commonplace where I'd have a case in what, any given county and allegations might be fairly serious, but the prosecutor would realize up front at the beginning of the process that there are some potential problems with the case. And I'd occasionally get a phone call before really much of anything had happened in the case and have a frank discussion with a prosecutor that said, hey, I this is what the allegation is. I do, however, have some concerns about the way that this was reported or the way the evidence was gathered, and I can see that there is a potential for this not being, you know, a perfect present wrapped with a bow. So I'd like to talk about something reasonable that we can do in the meantime. That doesn't happen anymore. It really doesn't happen anymore. And, and part of it is because 
I think there's a portion of the public that saw that practice as prosecutors shirking their responsibilities to seek a conviction. And part of that, again, it's been politicized. We all know now there's Marcy's Law, which has good intentions, but I think has very, very difficult consequences. For all involved, I know many prosecutors that feel that the Marcy's Law, the the victim's rights aspect of things that happen in court now, which were already considered all along. I mean, it's always been part of the law. It's always something that prosecutors are required to consider, of course, absolutely. Why not? That's the way it should be. But to make it something that's part of our Constitution and the fact that people that appear in court now have a, a different sense of what their role is. They're not just witnesses. They're people that are you know, uh, invited to um, influence the process in a way that makes it so being a prosecutor is is more difficult now. To, because the prosecutor is supposed to exercise discretion to seek justice, not to appease or please somebody who is identified as an alleged victim or a family member of an alleged victim. And I saw that at play in this case that I just just finished and and uh, secured an acquittal on earlier this week that there was a lot of um, emphasis on the prosecutor not really being in a position to admit that the case was garbage <laughs> because they've got a person there saying I don't want you to do that you know this is this is my case it's never any individual's case except for the defendant and the government. Those are the two parties. The defendant and the state. The government. And the government's interest is not always the same as someone who is identified as an alleged victim. And But, you know, there's all this um, influence now that... And I, I totally respect and understand why... Uh, Marcy's Law came about. Yes, there was a history of, um, I guess, dissatisfactory results in the system because of the way that uh, when you define the parties, as I said before, an alleged victim is not a party to the action, they're a witness. And it's the state is prosecuting the crime, not not on behalf of a client. I get that. That's that's just the way it is. I mean, it's it's a process whereby... Um, when a crime is reported and it's prosecuted, the people involved are witnesses. They're not, they don't own the case. It's not their case. They don't get to decide what happens because that's why we have a jury system. That's why we have judges. That's why we have the burden of proof. We don't, it would never work to have somebody who feels aggrieved to come into court and say, this is what's going to happen. First of all, the defendant's going to be found guilty. And secondly, this is what the punishment's going to be. That would eliminate the role of everybody else that's in the courtroom to make it so it's determined by someone who, you know, in trying to have a system that produces somewhat reliable or accurate results, we try to take those elements out of the process. We've always done that. We're reintroducing them because there has been an understandable sense of dissatisfaction with um, how we account for the human factor. And a lot of people, 
including the proponents of Marcy's Law right from the very beginning, would observe court or have gone through the experience of being a, an alleged victim in court and see that the defendant is afforded all of these rights, all of this consideration. You, you know, are you sure this is what you want to do? Have you had time to talk to your lawyer? Are you satisfied with this process? Because, because we're taking potentially this person's freedom away and it's going to affect them for the rest of their lives. So people came in and said, hey, why do defendants get so much consideration in criminal cases? Why, do they, why are they so special? What about the person who, you know, allegedly was the victim of an offense? Can't they be given the same sort of treatment? And that's really the genesis of how all this started, is to, you know, try and have some dignity, well, an enhanced level of dignity that goes in the process. I totally understand that. But when you when you try and combat, you, know, you try and put this in um, the equation where how do we balance constitutional rights that are there so that our society can function, you know, so that our society doesn't fall apart. Again, the reliability, the, the believability, the integrity of the system that when convictions occur, they are things that people can believe and trust in. And when acquittals occur, that people will have faith that that was the right answer too. You throw in this additional element and we have something that tips the balance in a way that, that makes it so it's a very rocky boat. Um, all right, I'm sorry. That's all the time we have for this week. I know I rambled on about some things maybe a little too long. I get accused of that often. But uh, we'll be back next week, and hopefully we'll have John on board if, if both of our busy schedules match up. But until then, um, have a great weekend. Tune in next week as you can every week right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. This has been Legal Defense.